Hey there, welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I invite you to keep listening for the next hour or so as we figure out what happened this week in the greater Seattle, Washington State area, what it all means. I've got a panel of journalists here to do that uh, with us together. And I know who these journalists are because I'm looking at them right now, even though I'm in my guest bedroom. And you can see us, too, because we're live streaming the show as we do on YouTube, on Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio and uh, you'll see New York Times technology correspondent Karen Wise. Karen, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, happy to be back. Seattle Met Deputy Editor Allison Williams. Hi, Allison. Hi, it's good to be here. Good to have you. And Northwest News Network correspondent Anna King. Anna, thanks for coming along. Good morning. Good morning. Happy autumn. We switched over to autumn this week. Had a big rain dump over this last weekend. Uh, our statewide burn ban got lifted on, on uh, natural resources land. The lands commissioner said we turned a corner on drought and heat. <sighs> Remember when you felt sorry to say goodbye to a Seattle summer? I don't know that I really feel that way today. How about you all? I think when it looks like summer outside, like it does right now, I'm, I'm all about fall. Yeah, yeah it works. That helps. We only get about seven to eight inches of rain on a good year over here in eastern Washington. So, uh, you know, we don't mind the seasons. They're, they're dry and they're usually pleasant. Where are you, Anna? I'm over in Richland, Washington, off the Columbia River in southeast Washington. Yeah. And I understand Noah just predicted a probably wet and cool winter. I don't know what that uh, means uh, on the east side of the Cascades. But again, wet and cool sounded good to me. We could sure use it. We have a lot of wheat farmers and, and dry land folks that really could use some good grass on the range. So we could use the moisture if we get a little extra. And Mount well, Rainier I'm, could I'm, use the snow. Yes, Karen. I'm just re reminded of the, what do I do with a kid in the rainy season again, particularly pre-vaccination. So yeah. Last weekend was like, what, what are the, there aren't that many tools at our fingers. All the pumpkin so. patches, just pumpkin patch after pumpkin. Patch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's get into the news of the week. That's our, that's our mission. Uh, we begin with COVID news today and you're, your president just said that, you know, you can get a booster shot if you meet these criteria. If you've got the Pfizer vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine in January, February, or March of this year, and you're over 65 years of age, go get the booster. Or if you're in a, have a medical condition like diabetes, or you're a frontline worker, like a healthcare worker or a teacher, you can get a free booster now. So the criteria are your age, gotta be Pfizer for now. Uh, your medical condition and being a frontline worker, although which health conditions exactly and who counts as a frontline worker and do Americans deserve a booster shot before the rest of the world is vaccinated? All that is swirling around. Anna King, you know, some teachers who uh, who sounds like definitely think that they are in danger. Yeah, I, I've been uh, talking to just my my friends and my community and uh one teacher in particular that's in my family, she just said um, she teaches in a rural area of Washington state. And she said, she, it's not just when she's gonna get COVID, but like how soon she probably is gonna get COVID. Uh, she says nearly a third of the teachers within her school are non-vaxxed and that uh, many are expected to walk out when the vaccine becomes a requirement or testing is a requirement. 
And um, she says, you know, in her school, there's already been several classrooms affected. One classroom of about uh, 16 students, 10 are out with COVID or have been directly exposed. And so that's just an example of what teachers are dealing with in schools right now. Um, it's just very frightening. And then these families are also part of multi-generational families that they're coming home to. And so that's also very worrying, um, you know, for uh, people like my parents or people uh, that are in their 70s or 80s that are taking care of grandchildren when they come home from school. Yeah, and you know, I was reading today uh, in the New Yorker with an epidemiologist talking about what the booster shot does and it is most effective in older populations where their immune response was just not as hardy as younger people. And so that booster can sort of bring it back up to where a lot of the uh, you know, middle-aged healthy adults have been able to stay. Um, so in that population, those, the older population, it can have maybe the most effect. Unfortunately, the best effect would be not to give a booster shot to somebody, but to give a full vaccine to somebody who is unvaccinated. If, if you wanted to have the biggest effect for that shot, it would be in an unvaccinated person. Unfortunately, that's, those are not the people that are beating down the doors and asking for the shots. So it's difficult. I think epidemiologists have been struggling to with the messaging on booster shots, saying whether or not we need them. It sounds like most healthy adults don't, younger healthy adults probably don't need them to stay the same level of protection. But by focusing on boosters, instead of maybe trying to get those unvaccinated people uh, their shots, it, it might just not have as much of an effect. That's right. I think that was behind the recommendation. The CDC recommendation was that it's the, the impact was greater on older populations than on younger, even if there might be um, uh, more exposure or something like that. The booster situation reminds me of the vaccine rollout in that when we were told to wait in line, but, you know, no pharmacist is arguing with you about your shot. And uh, I, f I reckon if you want a booster shot, you can probably get one. For one thing, you can just walk in and say you're unvaccinated. Although, Allison, you were saying you're not too not you're not too concerned with booster fraud right now. It's not your biggest concern. I mean, that's the case now. I heard anecdotally uh, about an older gentleman who decided that he wanted to get like as much vaccine as he could, and he got like the double shot like three or four times, and just like here's some great evidence that the vaccines don't do any harm, um, mm. and you know, unnecessary. Um, I don't think we're seeing that on a large scale to the point that we're depleting vaccine stores because people are hoarding the vaccine like they hoarded toilet paper. Um, so I do think if, if that, that continued um, support of the vaccine and having people who feel that they are vulnerable able to go out and get them, I just don't foresee a, an issue where we're going to worry about the people who lied about being vulnerable. Regarding the supply, I, I did see in the New York Times today, quote, analysts noted that even if the United States distributes booster shots, there should still be considerable excess vaccine supply this year. And they urged the government to begin sending the extra doses abroad. Anna, you had uh, breakthrough vaccinations on your mind this week uh, with uh, especially because some friends of yours who went to a was it a was it a sort of a super spreader? Yeah, um, I, I think that they would be scared to call it that, but I, but I did uh, cook uh, zucchini stew and bake some bread and make an apple pie for a family um, who both people in the couple got a, a breakthrough case. They 
had both um, had their both of their vaccines and um, they went to this small family event, um, less than 50 people. And uh, out of those guests, everybody showed their vaccine, their vaccine card on the way into the event. And uh, now 10 or so people have come down with a, a bad case of uh, breakthrough COVID uh, from that event. And so what that showed me is I was thinking, man, am I the only one not going to happy hours? Am I the only one uh, not going to uh, the museum show that I really want to go to or, or doing some of these fun uh, fall events? And uh, it, it kind of took me a little minute to say, yeah, maybe stepping back and, and just being low key is the way to go here. In fact, uh, this morning, my husband was waiting at a uh, at an emergency clinic to get a, a COVID test because last night he felt really iffy and we tried to get him a test last night. We couldn't get in anywhere because of course, everything was booked and and there's so many cases in the tri-cities where we live that it's really hard to get a test sometimes if you're after hours uh and um it, it came back negative and we're so thankful for that but um i think it's gonna be a bummer of a winter i, I was talking to uh, my family and saying maybe we're just not going to do thanksgiving and christmas this year we have 40 people in our family that are close and we usually have large events pre-covid um, and we didn't have anything last year, and it, it looks like that's lining up for this year as well. You know, I, I've been thinking, you know, I've been wearing masks the whole day. I don't think I've gone to the grocery store without a mask, you know, since last whatever April when we started wearing them. But I have been thinking more about which masks in a way that I haven't in a long time. I felt like through the spring, it was my, you know, my cute cloth mask that matches whatever I've got going on. Like, that's fine. I was using some more lightweight disposable ones. And you're, I'm starting to hear about some movement being made. I know Outdoor Research is a local company here that developed a mask with a removable filter, and they're even making some more headway on even more protection in their masks. And so I've, I've been thinking a little bit more, do I want the KN94, 95, whatever the number was, uh, you know, breaking that out more often. And I, I think you're right that as we go into to winter, we thought it was going to be very different than last year, and I'm not sure it is. Yeah, no, I'm the, I'm the same. I, mean, I pretty much moved to the more significant, you know, the filter mast as well. I got a big Costco case of them and I don't really see a reason not to at this point. Um, there's ample supply. It's not like the moments where we were a year ago where it was like save it for healthcare workers and essential workers at this point. The, the costs have come down because there's much better supply, all, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I think also just think a lot more about mask fit. You know, see a lot of like gapping. Um, I try to like make sure my nose stays down. All, I will say back to the foggy lenses in winter yes. where I thought last year COVID gets one winter of foggy lenses from me. And I guess it's going to get, going to get two, but um, my family's counting down to the pediatric vaccines. That's our, our eyes on the prize for a bit now. Yeah. I was watching a cross country meet yesterday through the fog of my lenses. And by the way, my daughter in that pack of runners where nobody's wearing a mask I know it's outside. Uh, she's unvaccinated. You know, you hope for the best. And uh, and and I hearing you talk, Anna, you just remind me how what a luxury it is to live in a place where 
I, I feel good about the high level of vaccination. I think where I live on Mercer Island, it's even, you know, it's, it's way up there. It must be around 90% or something like that. Um, Anna, I just wanted to ask, since we're talking about a breakthrough um, infections, do you know whether at that wedding where everyone showed proof of vaccination, does that mean no masks, no, no social distancing? Do you know how people behaved at the wedding? I I know that there weren't um, a mass employed. They were eating mm-hmm. and drinking, mm-hmm. and um, and my um, person that I know, um, you know, said while she was there, you know, it was like you kind of have those moments of like, oh, should I be doing this? And maybe maybe this was not what I expected when I signed up for this, but still participated. And I think that that's um, kind of where it's at now. It's like, if you get in a situation like that, it's so socially hard to tell your family or to tell your friends, no, I'm sorry, I'm not coming to your funeral. No, I'm sorry, I'm not coming to your wedding. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to go to Christmas. Um, it's so socially um, difficult and heart-wrenching. But at the same point, if you want to be safe and you don't want to have a scare like my husband and I did, um, it's seriously scary when you're considering, are we heading into a couple months of COVID here, uh, depending on, on a test? You, know? you had COVID yourself, Anna. It sounds like it was a struggle. I did. Um, it, I've talked a lot about it on public radio, so I won't belabor the point, but uh-huh. uh, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, eight, eight weeks of, of serious fighting and, and several um, several trips to the emergency room. And it's taken me a year of working really diligently to try to get my health back. I, I do yoga. I, I walk, you know, all the time during the week, uh, every morning, trying to get my lungs back and I'm still struggling to do that. So it's oh. not fun if you get it. No, we, we wish you the best. I wonder how we're going to adapt. You know, at some point in theory, this is supposed to be kind of, you know, endemic, like the flu where it's, and, and there, or at least for most people, will it be for everyone? Will it be, if, are there a certain segment where it will never be like that? Like, is there, you know, we, we know like King County is now this, this new database that sh- shows how you're like, if you're um, not fully vaccinated, you're eight times more likely to test positive for COVID, 44 times more likely to be hospitalized. And I think there's a question of like, we're clearly not there yet where it's not the emergency risk broadly as a society, but I wonder how we're gonna mentally adapt to that new era and will everyone be able to adapt to that new era? It's, whenever that is, I don't know, You know, clearly not now. <laughs> and we've. I mean, to Anna's point, we've seen over the past year and a half how much we take social cues over necessarily listening to public health directives. Uh, It is so much more powerful when you see other people going to the wedding, going to the party, than it is wondering if this last thing you read from the CDC would, you know, it's stilted language, how you're going to apply that to your life. And so I do think as we go forward, sometimes, you know, people being tired of of staying home is going to have such a bigger effect than you know, many directives on what we are supposed to be doing. And apparently being surrounded by your fellow Seahawks fans all uh, screaming and yelling with no mask is powerful as well. Did you see how few masks there were on Sunday? This is King County requires masks at big outdoor events. And there were stadium staff holding signs saying mask up. But, you know, you're outside. You got 
you have a hot dog and a drink and you might eventually need to put that in your mouth and you did you had to show vaccination proof to get into the stadium unless they don't enforce that either so uh, i don't know whether the county is going to do anything else about enforcement or threaten to shut down seahawk games i can't quite imagine uh, it just seems like a public sentiment issue but um Anyway, that's um, as someone who yeah, went, who was tested, you know, who did, who did have to show their vaccination card and stuff. They were checking at the gate for what it's worth. They were, yeah. According to what to one to a person I, I just uh, met this week, yeah, yeah, yeah. Safer um, to go to a fall roundup is what I say. If you got to be around about uh, you know a, a two thousand crazy animals or so, uh, go to a fall roundup. Safer. That's, uh, that's Anna King talking with us in, in Richland there. We've got Allison Williams here from Seattle Met and Karen Wise from the New York Times. Um, by the way, speaking of uh, uh, animals and health there, Anna, you reported this week on dogs getting sick. This is separate from COVID, but uh, apparently some dogs getting sick and dying after playing not in a lake, but in the Columbia River. Would you tell us what's going on? Yeah, several dogs uh, started coming down sick uh, around the 12th of September is when they started kind of finding out about the animals and several animals had had sicknesses before uh, that date. And uh, basically, uh, they're finding anatoxin A, which is a neurotoxin in the Columbia River. And to my knowledge, this is the first time that we've seen it in the Columbia um, and especially recently, and that this is, uh, you know, a major river. This is one of the largest rivers in North America. And um, to have this amount of water flow be affected and for them to find, you know, a more than uh, almost nearly a dozen samples of this uh, neurotoxin in some uh, ratio on the river is quite concerning. Uh, several of the cities here in the Tri-Cities draw their drinking water directly from the Columbia River. Pasco, Kennewick, Richland, and West Richland all use river water. Uh, they're doing a couple samples a week, which as a Richland water drinker feels a little bit uh, just not quite as robust as I would like to see uh, the, the testing. Um, they have to fly it to a lab over there in King County um, for them to get the tests and to get the results back. So it is there is some delay after they take the test. And this uh, toxin is very sensitive to light and it kind of breaks down over time. So even if they are testing it, they might not be finding the full amount that was taken right at the moment it was extracted from the river. Um, is this, Anna, is this drinking water taken from, from flowing part of the river? And is this, or these algae blooms happening in the, you know, the shallow stagnant pools? And does the drought have anything to do with this? Uh, the drought most definitely has something to do with this, uh, according to the algae experts that I've been speaking with. Uh, they are taking some of these samples near the river shore, but they're also taking additional samples right from the Richland and, and other city water supplies. So they uh, are definitely testing both streams. Uh, uh, and I think that it's just really uh, concerning that rivers are acting like lakes. And all of the yeah. experts that I've been uh, talking to are saying, as the climate warms and as our waters warm in the Northwest and we see less snowfall, this is gonna become more and more common. I have so many questions, anybody, but I, I wanna give uh, other panelists any 
Uh, anything you want to uh, ask or just a reaction to, um, you know, fatal algae blooms? Again, as you say, a, a river behaving like a like a lake. Yeah, I mean, I know I there's a uh, the Department of Ecology has a website that they report um, places with levels that are, you know, of algae. And that's it's something I look at a decent amount. I have a dog who goes in. I cannot stop him from getting in any body of water. Mm. Uh, so I. I look at it a lot and I had always seen those certain lakes and they tended to be um, a little bit warmer and, and stagnant was the thing I was looking for. And so when I heard uh, that story about the Columbia, I was definitely raising my eyebrows because I mean, not just, I know that there are parts of the Columbia river that are not flowing quite as fast as others, but like that to me, it just blew my mind. And it's a reminder that like, as drought becomes more common, we just, we don't know what all the effects are going to be. There are people that might have already predicted this, but the lay people who are sitting around thinking about it just meaning one or two things, it can affect us in just a million different ways. I talked to some veterinarians at the uh, Washington State University, and um, they were recommending that you might uh, take a water bottle for your pup on hikes and on any adventures to lakes that you're going to take. Uh, and make sure that they're drinking out of the water bottle, not out of the, the puddles and, and the little uh, divots where water collects. Uh, I know my pup really loves to find a good puddle. And uh, so they said that these algae blooms, not only in the Columbia River, but in puddles and in lakes and other stagnant water can uh, really uh, wreak havoc on your pet. And so hunters often carry their own water for their animals. We were talking about earlier about this mysterious situation in California, this family who um, a, a couple, their daughter, baby, baby, and their dog all died mysteriously near Yosemite. And one of the potential reasons was this algae. They're, 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 it's not clear they haven't determined it, but it's definitely one of the things that has like you know, they're investigating. And in reading around that, they said it would be really unusual to have humans die, that there are not reported cases uh, is the coverage I was seeing were saying to have humans die from it, that it's mostly affecting animals, but that it can affect animals extremely quickly, essentially. But the case in California is just a big tragic mystery. If there's other hypotheses, but this is certainly one they seem to be exploring. There are actually human cases that have been major, um, you know, down in, in South America, there was a case of a dialysis of, uh, uh, clinic that uh, had contaminated water that went into the dialysis system that killed many, many people. Um, there have been other cases, but it depends on the class of this toxin. There's like four major toxins that they're even testing for now. And they believe that there's like many, many more, but they don't even know how to test them very good yet in, in a commercial way. And so um, of those four, there, there have been human casualties, but um, it just depends on the class. That's Anna King telling you about the toxic algae in the Columbia River in the Tri-Cities area. Uh, we've got to take a break now on Week in Review. We're covering some of the big news of the week, and uh, we've got a labor shortage going on nationwide and in Seattle. Uh, and uh, Allison Williams just dove into that head first. We'll talk about that when we come right Week in Review. We're live streaming the show on uh, YouTube and Facebook. We'll be right back.
You're catching up on a week's worth of news with me, Bill Radke, and my guests, Northwest News Network's Anna King, Seattle Mets, Allison Williams, and the New York Times' Karen Wise. Karen, would you catch us up uh, on this Jeff Bezos pledge of a billion dollars? You, you, you worked on this New York Times story this week. Bezos is pledging a billion dollars for conservation. What does he want to conserve? Yeah, there's been this big push. It's actually um, beyond just Bezos. The Bloomberg Philanthropies, a couple of other large foundations have made collectively a $5 billion commitment to try to preserve more land from development and try to do it in ways that is sensitive to the local communities that live around it. So this was kind of, it was UN Climate Week or something in in. Uh, New York. And so this was a big announcement. They have a 30 by 30. It's trying to, I hope I don't mess this up, trying to preserve 30% of a certain type of environment with, by 2030. So it's essentially um, this, this land to, cons- a push to stop development on lands, essentially, and, and preserve uh, habitat and biodiversity and things like that. And Bezos singled out the Congo Basin, the Andes, and tropical parts of the Pacific Ocean that I, I, I assume are especially important for biodiversity. Do we know yet who's going to do what to help the situation? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, uh, there's this, I apologize. I, there's a consortium of different countries that are sort of leading the effort of Britain, Costa Rica, and France are, are part of it. And it's trying to prevent this biodiversity crisis that there is. Um, and you know, this is all for, from Jeff Bezos. He made a commitment, uh, I want to say a year and a half ago, um, roughly, asterisk, um, to give away $10 billion. Um, he calls it the Bezos Earth Fund. And so th- it, it had been kind of pretty slow rolling. And this was the first, he'd done a, a, oh, he'd done a couple, should I go? Oh. I can hear you, Karen. Oh, I, I hear radio. I hear an ad. Sorry. Oh, um, something's oh, feeding your headphones. You no, no. Headphones. We'll try to. We'll tr- <laughs> do you want me to, I'm is back, it, is it hard to yeah. talk? Do you want me to take over? No, I'm okay, good. Go I'm good. Yeah. So basically he made this $10 billion commitment with pretty much no details initially. And he finally is building some structure around it. And this is the, definitely by far the largest kind of commitment to, and this is again, trying to, um, kind of prevent greater biodiversity loss and preserving 30% of the Earth's surface by 3030, essentially. Okay, very good. And his girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez, vice chair of the the fund. I saw you tweet, you you tweeted about that or retweeted. You know, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's been um, in photos of him meeting with different leaders and stuff like that. But this was a more formal arrangement, you could could say. Okay. Um, Yeah. And obviously, you know, biodiversity generally good for um, preventing uh, species collapse, for uh, extinction, and then also the kind of, you know, forests are good, they give us oxygen, they clean the air, you know, you want, um, there's kind of, over time, we've learned so much more about the complexity of ecosystems and how if you have kind of collapse of one species, the ripple effects it can have to others and things like that. So that's sort of the big picture thought by it. But yeah, for him, it's definitely, his fund has solidified its organization and hired a, a kind of, a C, I forget the title, CEO or top you know, director to manage it, to create the strategy. And this is kind of the first really large kind of commitment within the commitment, if you will. 
Okay, another $9 billion to go in, in nine years, and Bezos has said he's going to uh, spend money on landscape restoration and food system transformation. And uh, I bet Karen Wise will be writing about that stuff in the New York Times, and you could read more uh, as, as in days to come. You're listening to Week in Review here on KUOW, and as I mentioned uh, a, a few moments ago, we, we do have a labor shortage, particularly in Seattle, where it's an expensive place to live. And uh, but it's it's a nationwide issue. And uh, from Seattle Met, Allison Williams, you took your first ever. You're doing a series called Never Have I Ever. And that includes for you. Never have you ever had a shift in the food service industry until now. Somehow this was my my summer of being a guinea pig for stories. It was super yeah. fun. I the, the the funnest one was I'd never had a cup of coffee. And I um, know. And let me just say, like, I'm holding up a cup of coffee here from uh, my neighborhood coffee shop. I've I went from like zero to 60 immediately. I, um, yeah, coffee, not, co- coffee lets you go from zero to 60 immediately. Exactly. That's part of the beauty. Exactly. But, um, you know, I was talking with a friend who owns a restaurant here in Capitol Hill, and he kept joking that, well, I thought he was joking that I should come and work a few shifts at the restaurant. And as somebody who has never worked in any kind of uh, customer service uh, position, I just kept laughing. It's like, why, why would you want me? Uh, and he said he was just that desperate for 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 help. And so I went and worked a couple of shifts at his restaurant and I did not drop anything. So I'm very proud of that. But um, I learned a little bit more about the labor shortage specifically in the restaurant industry here. Uh, I think the latest numbers are the state has uh, about 54,000 uh, job openings or, or um, under underemployment in the hospitality industry. And you see that, I mean, if you go on job websites here in Seattle and look under food uh, service, you see restaurants that are offering 20, 25, 30, up to $40 an hour to dishwashers and cooks and um, signing bonuses, $2,000 signing bonuses if they stay for a year. And, um, you know, around restaurants in the city, you're seeing hours being shortened because they don't have the staff. And, uh, you know, I just... I, a lot of people want to say it had to do with the extra unemployment uh, that was available during the pandemic. Which is winding it, down, by the way, those it, it employment is. benefits. Yeah. And, you know, I was speaking to someone at the Washington Hospitality Association and, and they were saying they, they just don't see the numbers there, the number of um, ex-hospitality workers that are on uh, unemployment and then the number of openings. It's There are far, far, far more openings Uh and in states that uh, did not extend pandemic relief in unemployment, they didn't see a big boom of a lot more people coming back and taking jobs. And it, it, it's for reasons that were existing before the pandemic and were just exacerbated by it. Um, you have people who can't live in Seattle, can't live in an expensive city mm-hmm. uh, on a restaurant wage who don't like the lack of flexibility. I mean, it's really hard. You can't call out on a shift unless you find someone to cover you. Um, you might not find out what your shifts are until right beforehand, um, you know, the late nights. And, and right now, the customers are not all fantastic as mm. people are dining out and not always responding to mask uh, instructions and not having patience for some slower turnaround times. And it's not necessarily an attractive place to work for a lot of people. And I think my sense that I got is there was there were a lot of off ramps to working in the restaurant industry. And I think just COVID just was sending some more people off, you know, in that direction. I think one restaurant owner told me he used to have uh, artists and musicians that would work a restaurant job and do their their art or their music here rather than L.A. or New York, because it was a lot cheaper to live here. Mm -hmm. Once it got just about as expensive as L.A. or New York, they said, well, 
if I'm going to be a musician, I should be in LA, right? You know, if it's going to cost me the same for a, a, you know, shared one bedroom apartment, I might as well do it in a place where all the art stuff is. So, you know, issues like that, you're, you know, it's getting a little bit, I know my friend, fortunately is all staffed up. He does not need me to serve uh, diners anymore, but it's going to be a long-term issue here. So Anna, one of the big issues there is the Seattle area cost of living. What does the labor shortage look like? And this is a broad question, I realize, but on the entire east side of the Cascades, Anna, speak for the entire uh, more than half of the state. What's it like over there? Any examples? Um, what we're seeing over here, uh, I, I did a little bit of calling around to some of uh, the people that I know and my sources in the wine industry, and particularly just to give you some some feeling of this, you know, we're coming into apple harvest, there's also the grape harvests of here, and a lot of uh, a lot of workers just aren't to be found for picking those grapes and grapes and apples, by the way, have to come off the tree within, you know, like about a week or even a couple days for the prime uh, peak of flavor and, and what they want to see in those fruits. And so to not be able to get them off for maybe another week is, is really kind of a hardship sometimes when you want your cab to be at a certain, you know, 26 bricks or something like that. Um, so they're having trouble with that. And they're also having trouble in tasting rooms and restaurants. I talked to one owner of, of operation that he has an operation both in Woodenville and in Richland, Washington, that's Bookwalter Winery. John Bookwalter and I had a chat this morning and he said he basically has 50% of the staff that he wants and needs right now. He is opening a brand new 2000 square foot tasting facility this weekend, tomorrow, and he doesn't have all the workers that he needs. He says he could use about 20 more bussers, line cooks, uh, expos. He just can't find them. And, and, and uh, if, it's, if cost of living is not the issue there that it is in, the Seattle, in Seattle, especially Seattle proper, what are the main drivers there? And, and why can't employers, uh, I know it's expensive, but if this is, if this is the, this, the, the choice they're facing, why can't they increase you know, wages and benefits fast enough to get the workers they need when you got to get the fruit off or you got to get your job done? Well, um, for people that want to live out here in Eastern Washington, there are a lot of different work opportunities that are pretty high paying and you don't necessarily have to have education behind uh, those choices. They'll train you on the job. So, you know, you could be a forklift operator or a mechanic or a farm laborer uh, that kind of works up within the farm structure. So there's a lot of jobs out here and there's just not enough people to fill those jobs. Plus when Seattle people don't wanna to go to Europe and they don't wanna to go to other locations throughout the world that they might mm. be traveling to regularly, where do they come? They come to Walla Walla, they come to the Tri-Cities to get kick back a glass of wine, have a weekend on the river. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing a lot of increase in travel uh, from urban areas to uh, these locations east of the mountains. I think it's pretty striking how this is an, a national issue too. You know, um, you're seeing it in more rural areas. You're seeing it in cities. Um, FedEx, it's kind of interesting. FedEx just said this week they um, uh, lowered their profit estimates for the whole year because of labor. And they said that in the Portland, their Portland, Oregon hub, um, that they only have 65% staffing levels. And as a result, then there's kind of ripple effects. 
So because they don't have enough people working in this one hub, they have to send packages farther away, which then take more labor to deal with and are more expensive to deal with. So you end mm. up with these ripple effects. And this was this was the leading reason. And their stock fell like I forgot five percent or something because of this reduced outcome. It's really based on labor. You know, I'd spend a lot of time talking to Amazon workers and and, and Amazon's doing this big hiring spree. And workers are coming from different industries. They're leaving for different industries. People are really reevaluating what a job means to them, what they're looking for out of a job, what makes a quality job. You know, I've heard restaurant workers who were like, I realize I don't have to work a night shift. That's kind of amazing to work during daylight hours or vice versa. Folks who are working a night shift and said, I know I get a day shift at this other warehouse for $2 more an hour. I'm out. Like there's opportunity now. So you, you do see this um, a, a, a kind of people reevaluating what they're looking for out of an employer, out of a job. Yeah. And because of the disruption, the, the pandemic really enabled or forced in, in different cases. And what's interesting is every time you have a slight shortage, it makes those remaining jobs much less attractive because, you know, a chef that a cook that doesn't mind being in a kitchen with three or four other people, if it's just, you know, him and one other person, all of a sudden that job is a lot harder and he's even more likely. So you, you, you dip down a little bit and then it becomes a cascading effect as those jobs become much and much less attractive. And Absolutely. Amazon's stores. on overtime a lot now. I hear from a lot of workers about we've been on overtime for five weeks, six weeks, different buildings, different parts of the country, different situations, but um, that's something that pushes people out. I'm going to find a job that doesn't make me do overtime. So there is absolutely this kind of interconnected nature. And at the same time, like across the country, households have more cash than they have had in years. So people, um, you know, people didn't spend for a long time in this economy. And as a result, people have a cushion to kind of be a little more selective than they were in the past. And we're all looking at stability. I mean, having seen what can happen to some industries when COVID hit people, I mean, I'd heard that a lot of folks from the restaurant industry ended up in say grocery stores because they knew that if there's another shutdown, that was likely to be more stable. And I think that just the, the big competition for workers, we're seeing out here where farmers, one farmer will raise the price a small amount. He might lose half his crew to that other farm. And, and then he has to raise his more than that. And it kind of seesaws uh, across the landscape. At, at the Taco Bell in Walla Walla right now, they're offering a $1,000 signing bonus and $14.25 an hour. So I don't think it's just the, the uh, urban places that are really seeing this. And for uh, rural people, this is a problem. You know, you could get off a potato digger at three in the morning and you want a hot meal on your way home. And a lot of my farmer sources are telling me they can't find anything to eat when they get off of work and they have to go home and their wife or, or whoever is home is already asleep. So they're, they're having trouble that way too. You saw actually Dick Strive in their announcement of raising wages to 19 an hour $19, minimum. Yeah. 19 an hour minimum. They also reduced night hours um, for half the week because they said for the sustainability of our staff, it's that exactly that, that, if, you know, you, you got to, people are picking and choosing when to operate, how to operate yeah. driven by labor, driven by the people running the business. And I think we're going to look back at maybe pre-pandemic times as being this height of being able to have hours, extended hours everywhere, being able to get any package in two days, you know, bouncing across the country. I think it's going to be a while before we're ever back to that sense. 
that you know a lot of us were at before the pandemic. We've got to take a break. Allison, a first time food worker shift. What was the hardest thing about working in a restaurant? Honestly, like pouring water and not like pouring it all over people. I feel so <laughs> awkward, but um, yeah. Especially and if you're pouring water out of a pitcher of ice water, right? Yeah, it was, it was, there was some, some awkward moments. And uh, I do think one table ended up with like three beet salads, but I just, you know, I pretend they really like beets. <laughs> All right. Uh, that is Allison Williams from Seattle Met. We've got the New York Times, Karen Wise here, Northwest News Network's Anna King. And we're figuring out what happened this week and what it all means. You, you're listening to us. You're watching us. If you're on YouTube or Facebook, we're going to take a quick break and uh, tell you another story or two, give you a reason to smile. So don't go away. Weekend Review coming right back. Bill Radke here. My guests, Allison Williams, Karen Wise, and Anna King of the Northwest News Network. Anna, there was an enormous farm equipment sale this week, which normally would not make the Week in Review, except the story behind it is amazing. Would you please tell us the story of the fake cows, a.k.a. ghost cattle? <laughs> All right. Well, um, this story uh, came to me by way of rumors. Uh, early on, uh, I just heard snips and snaps. Uh, and then finally, I was able to put some facts to it when uh, some lawsuits touched down in Franklin County and then went to federal bankruptcy court. But basically, Easterday, Cody Easterday, um, created a, a ghost cattle herd um, that, that was worth more than uh, $200 million. And, and he fed these animals on paper in a complex manner with feed tickets and receipts and swindled Tyson out of all of this money. And so uh, it's now a federal fraud case and he gets sentenced on October 5th. And uh, we're waiting to see how much time he might uh, get. Uh, it could be up to 20 years. And um, this case is really complex. It spans the environment. It spans uh, the futures um, market. It, it spans uh, all kinds of different scenarios. And so it's been really interesting to report out as it's gone along. What did East, Cody Easterday do with the fake cattle money? So he largely was uh, kind of speculating on the futures market uh, in, in cattle. And so uh, he, he accrued large, large debts. And I, I did a whole story just on that. Um, uh, some of his bids were in, in the tens of millions of dollars. And um, so it, it really was kind of uh, this... Uh, habit maybe uh, that he was doing or, or something that he was really intense on. And, um, and, and then he just owned and, and ran a very, very large business. It's kind of a kretsu, which is a, a Japanese word for like a complex business structure. Um, basically, the whole family owns, you know, restaurants and massive swaths of Columbia ground, uh, huge uh, fleets of trucks, planes, hangars, uh, just just massive uh, business on, on a scale, potato sheds, factories that process uh, all of these uh, pro products, and uh, they all work in concert. So like they grow potatoes on a field, and then they process those potatoes in their 
processing uh, factory and then they sell those potatoes at the restaurant that they own on the Columbia River and then the waste of all those potatoes goes to feed the cattle that they're raising. So they're all intricately, you know, uh, linked together. And so the whole thing is under strain right now. And it, it's been a very interesting uh, saga to report on. You can read about the cattle swindle, the ghost cows, the uh, bankruptcy liquidation, and the upcoming prison sentence at uh, KOW.org. Was that Allison? Were you saying something? I, I was just going to say, you know, we hear a lot about the environmental impact of cattle and, and, and our beef, but I'm just thinking maybe we finally found the perfect green cattle raising. It's just they have to be imaginary and yeah. no methane and, you know, it's... That's true. Impossible burgers for yes. real. Um, okay, uh, we're we're gonna get to what made us what, what's something that that might make you smile this week. I just wanted to get a, a quick take, uh, Karen. Since in the New York Times you you write about Amazon, I saw that California passed a law about workers' health that seemed to be aimed, at, you know, at least partly at Amazon. And I wondered, is that going to, you know, a lot of times California does something and you have to change everything because you can't have two different systems. Are we are we going to see something very different from from what it's like to work in an Amazon warehouse? Yeah, you know, California passed law, first of the nation law regulating um, uh, the quotas and the kind of rate system that Amazon uses with its workers and its warehouses. And so part of it's interesting it requires disclosures and one you know if you disclose something in one state if it's your nationwide system you kind of learn how a whole system can operate um, very few people are actually fired for productivity reasons but it's a kind of the dominant force in the day-to-day -day life of workers and it has a ripple effect part of the reason legislators con uh, tackled the issue was they said it had impacts on physical safety um, of workers that they felt pressure to work beyond what was what was safe um, and so, yes, I think California does create model legislation, but even if other, other um, states don't adopt it, we'll still learn a lot about the system and, and how, to, um, how it works. And, and then if Amazon has to make changes to adapt to it, we will, we'll start being able to see what happens in California as a test case. If, does it mean they hire more because the workers don't work as fast? You learn more about the algorithms that drive the systems. We'll, we'll just have to see kind of what comes out of it. It just was just signed into law this week. But um, but it's sort of like cars, right? California has the highest fuel standard, and as a result, cars in the U.S. have a high fuel, higher fuel standard. Yeah. Okay. And so it's, that... it's a state where they they employ a lot of people in California, obviously one of the largest consumer markets, and it's not like they can pull out of California. Their their business is driven by fast delivery, which is driven by putting products close to people, so they can't serve the population at the speed that consumers want if they're shipping it out of Kentucky or something. Karen Wise reporting on Amazon ongoing like in the New York Times. And as we uh, come to the end of our show, we always try to give you something to smile about. I just want to contribute uh, one of my own. I don't know if this is, makes me smile or not, but our state has stopped taking phone calls reporting carpool lane and ferry line violators. You've all seen the signs that say report violators 877-764-HERO. Those have been up for most of my life, like, I don't know, almost 40 years and the state says they've served their purpose. You all know what you're supposed to do. And, uh, and anyway, we don't want people making phone calls while they drive anyway. So uh, uh, police theoretically enforce carpool lane violations themselves. And, uh, and now they're going to hand out tickets in ferry lines, $139 tickets to drivers who cut in. Except it is so, I used to live on Vashon. Well, you probably know this too. You've, you've been in ferries, ferry lines. It's hard to catch 
a line cutter unless somebody reports it immediately. And even then, the line cutter can say they were confused and they might be right because you you can easily get partway down a ferry line before you realize where it is. And there are big spaces between the cars because people start up their cars whenever they get around to it. And they have to keep the driveways and the bus stop clear. So it looks like, hey, I can pull in right there. Uh, so that's that's my hero news. Um, ferry lines and carpools. <laughs> Karen, are you laughing at me or, or remembering a delicious incident you had in a ferry line? No, I'm laughing at the, you have emotion about the ferry line. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Don't we all? <laughs> um, I am looking forward to hiking tomorrow. It looks like a beautiful day. And um, it should, I, I look forward to seeing our beautiful state. Indeed. I, uh, I think what's making me smile, uh, I went to the Kraken Community Iceplex last weekend. Hey, for the public just skate. it just opened, yeah. Just brand new facility, just opened. Um, I, you know, Kraken don't need to worry that I'm coming for any of their positions. Uh, mm -hmm. This is my first time on skates in a couple of decades. And uh, I only fell once, very proud of that, but mm. the bruise is still there. And like I gotta say, it's just a beautiful facility, 100% masking from everything I saw. And, really? Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. I did not see a single person uh, without a mask. And uh, the light rail station there at uh, Northgate is going to be opening next week, which will make it a really, uh, you know, accessible spot for, you know, a little ice skating, watch the little kids who are so much better than you and people skating backwards with their hands in their pockets. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Yeah, just real quick, the station, like uh, the, those stations open up on Saturday, October 2nd, and I am going to be at the University District light rail station from I think it's one to three, just saying hi and sort of celebrating the uh, the opening. So uh, so come down and see us. Anna, I don't expect you all the way from Richland, but uh, we, I would smile if you came. But what is making you smile this week before we go? Well, here's my pitch to Karen. Come to Eastern Washington for your hike, because right now the rabbit brush is in bloom and it's a shrub that's about as high as sagebrush. It grows adjacent to sagebrush. And it's painting the desert gold right now. It's just this beautiful okra color. And it is amazing because the flowers smell like honey. So as you ride through the sage or through the sagebrush and rabbit brush, your boots scrape the rabbit brush and it makes the whole desert smell like honey. And um, it's just amazing. And uh, there's a photo on my Instagram, I, I uh, Insta at, uh, at Rural Watercolor, if you want to see it. But uh, it's better to see it in person if you can make it over the mountains. That there's an example of why I love Anna King's reporting. Uh, that's Anna King from Northwest News Network, our correspondent there. Uh, and we've got New York Times technology correspondent Karen Wise with us and Seattle Mets deputy editor Allison Williams. And this hour has flown by. It's just been a joy being with all of you. Thank you so much for reviewing the week. Thanks for having us. It is my pleasure. We uh, want to also thank Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza for social media and live streaming. They're why you can watch the show. Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz produced our program today. I'm Bill Radke, and let's do this all again coming up the next Friday, and we can review.